Just say random when things. In when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to sunder the ties that have bound them to another. <laughs> Classic. That's perfect. <laughs> Hi, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Fly on the Wall Podcast. My name is Christian Mesa. My name is the better roommate, Aaron Bennett. <laughs> Every time, guys. Every time. So this is our episode of Fly on the Wall Podcast. We are really excited that you guys are tuning in this week. Follow us at Fly on the Wall Pod. You can hit us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, or should just email at Fly on the Wall Podcast little trick there fly on the wall podcast at gmail.com we want to hear from you we want to expand our our uh, audience so anything you uh you want to contribute we retweet very very uh happily and easily yeah we're hashtag team <laughs> follow back too oh every time we will follow you back uh, today's guest is michael Steele. he was a geopolitics fellow in the fall of 2016 uh and he is a republican communications strategist extraordinaire whatever you want to call it uh but most notably press secretary for uh, Speaker of the House uh, Boehner, as well as a uh, senior communications advisor to Jeb Bush's uh, can- uh, presidential campaign just a few months ago. But uh, let's talk a little bit about the news of the week. Yeah, um, so there's a lot going on, guys. Um, so we don't normally do this, but we're actually going to have a bit of a snapshot into what's going on in the world, um, because there is a ton of news on the world sphere in terms of politics, and it's all very relevant to what's going on in the White House right now. So there are three big things going on in the world right now, all of which have really, you know, come to fruition in the last week. Uh, the first one is North Korea. Um, you know, North Korea has been, you know, not a friend of the United States uh, for basically since its inception. Um, you know, we fought on the other side. <laughs> and so uh, North Korea has, you know, definitely been, you know, a big problem for the United States, but tensions have really gone to a boiling point recently. Um, you know, very recently, um, Kim Jong-un, who's the leader of um, North Korea, um, basically went out and in a show of force showed all of the missiles that he had at a parade um, and then said that he was going to have another nuclear launch. It's a very tense moment, guys, and definitely something to watch out for on the international stage. Uh, two other big stories in Europe, uh, the first being um, snap elections in Britain. You know, Britain has a diff- different uh, political system than this we do. This is crazy. I don't know how you can just do this. I don't understand. I, <laughs> I understand it, but I don't understand it. Election. June. Um, <laughs> Make it done. Let's go get some that, tea. <laughs> I don't think that's how that works. Um, but considering that elections uh, in Britain are held uh, uh, basically very quickly, it's kind of wild. Um, basically, imagine if, you know, the Speaker of the House just went out one day and was like, everyone is now up for re-election. You have, fools. you have two months, uh, you know, get votes. That's basically what's going on in Britain right now. And it's very different from the United States' system where, you know, yes, we're constantly running elections, but it takes like two years to run an election. At least you know when the election is. Right, yeah. Um, and basically what Theresa May is doing is she's trying to get more of a consensus, uh, for, uh, the Conservative Party so she can have a better... A seat at the negotiating table for Brexit. Um, and so basically this election is about whether or not, um, you know, Brexit is going to be very difficult and very hard or if it's going to be more of a, um, maybe a compromise. Um, and it's it's a fascinating thing to watch. Uh, the other big story that's going on right now um, is France. Uh, the French election is really heating up. It's really ratcheting up. Um, we have uh, four candidates in the election and all of them are polling at anywhere from 19% to 24%. Basically, what work, how it works there is the top two candidates from that election go on to the general election, which is only a month later, because again, European elections are very fast um, <laughs> in terms of the United States' system. 
Um, and you have two very opposing candidates, uh, you know, one from the very, very far left, and then you have one from uh, the very, very far right and Marine Le Pen. And, you know, a lot of people are talking that Marine Le Pen may be the next President Trump um, in terms of her anti-globalist, anti-immigration stances. Uh, so it's a really interesting election to watch. And, you know, there's a lot going on in the international stage. And it's really important to understand it all if you're going to understand domestic politics. Well, I'm not SFS, so I can't speak with too much authority on uh, international stuff. So I'm going to bring things a little back. Uh, closer to home uh, and talk about the big story in the House of Representatives this week, which was the fact that Jason Chaffetz, the chair of the House Oversight Committee, is just not going to run for re-election in 2018. Nay, he might not even finish his term. It's wild. It's crazy. It the, all, all that happens to the poor guy is he gets screamed at at a couple town halls, and all of a sudden, you know, he, he doesn't have the thick skin enough to, to handle being a member of Congress. I hear he's shopping private sector jobs. Yeah. Like, what? What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that analysis? Um, I don't think Jason Chaffetz is leaving because he doesn't have the skin for it. I think Jason Chaffetz is looking for a new job, and I don't think it's going to be in the private sector for very long. Um, I think it's pretty clear that Jason Chaffetz is going into this uh, with the intent on running for higher office in Utah. You think so? Absolutely. Part of his statement was that he's not going to run for office in 2018, which is when Orrin Hatch's seat is up. Yep, 2018. But 2020 has a gubernatorial election in Utah. Interesting. And I think he's going to be going for that seat. Again, I don't... What do I know? I just read the tweets. Um, <laughs> but um, I would venture a guess that Jason Chaffetz is done with the House. Well, I'm curious to see if he loses any political capital if he decides to abandon his constituents you know, midterm. I wonder what that, uh, what that implication would have if he all of a sudden wants to launch a gubernatorial race. Yeah, I definitely think it's interesting. Um, honestly, I think the problem is that there's just not a lot of movement in the House. I mean, he's chairing currently one of the most powerful committees mm-hmm. uh, that there is, to be frank, in the House. And, you know, there's not a lot to gain from that. Um, outside of just, you know, name recognition. There's not a lot of movement in the House, and I think that that's what he's looking for. Interesting. Well, uh, let's move on a little bit and talk about, you know, more drama in the House. Our look ahead for next week, our spotlight that we're shining on the story of the week, uh, very quickly is that it's going to be a busy week in Congress, to say the least. We have uh, <laughs> we have a couple big initiatives being uh, apparently another reform effort uh, at the Affordable Care Act, another repeal and re- uh, replace effort. Uh, as well as uh, trying to stave off a government shutdown. We're going to try to either pass a continuing resolution or pass a fiscal year bill uh, by Friday when the uh, government would effectively shut down, which we'll talk more about uh, Michael Steele with, um, which could make for a very busy legislative week and not a week that Justin and I want to be on the Hill for. It's going to be a a little bit crazy. Yeah, it's going to be wild. I mean, basically, the reason that this is all happening is that, um, number one... um, you know, number one, the government shutdown is looming. Uh, but number two and three is that uh, President Trump is looking at his, uh, you know, quote unquote, 100 days agenda, um, which is something every president is judged by. Um, and basically looking at what he's gotten done and what he still needs to get done. And, you know, a lot of promises that he made at the very beginning for repealing and replacing Obamacare, for getting tax reform through by the first 100 days have not been met. Um, so he's trying to ram those through um, in, in the sense that... Uh, Basically, he wants to put it on his resume um, for his, you know, 100 days agenda. Um, and it's it's a difficult thing to do in, uh, you know, in the looming uh, government shutdown that's going on. So it's going to be a crazy week in the House. Speaking of President Trump, uh, let's transition into our tweet of the week, uh, which actually came from the president uh, regarding the special election in Georgia 6 with... If you don't know about that after the amount we talked about <laughs> on this podcast, uh, I, I really can't help you because we have been... We have been 
beating the dead horse on this one about how impactful this election will be or was uh, and will probably continue to be since we're going to a runoff. Yeah, for national politics. It's uh, an for national thing. politics. If only we had like an entire episode devoted uh, to the Georgia Six. Do we have an entire episode devoted to uh, Georgia Six? Oh yeah, we do. I forgot about that. We totally went down to uh, Georgia for a week. Uh, a weekend to, you know, talk to a bunch of different uh, candidates and talk to a bunch of different, you know, political operatives in the area about the Georgia 6 election. Um, so if you guys aren't sure about what's going on there, check it out. Um, you know, it may not be incredibly impactful in terms of votes, but it's incredibly impactful in terms of the political scene. But for now, tweet of the week from Donald Trump, quote, despite major outside money, fake media support, and 11 Republican candidates, big, and then in quotes, are win, I assume that means Republican, win with runoff in Georgia. Glad to be of help. And the story behind this tweet, it, well, <laughs> the story behind this tweet is that uh, the runoff, which will be what, June 23rd? Am I right in that date? Sometime around that. It's June something. June something. Um, <laughs> we'll double check that. I'm and not edit a Georgia 6 president. I don't need to vote. <laughs> um, the, the runoff is being claimed as a victory for both sides. Democrats will claim it as a victory because, you know, deeply, deeply, deeply Republican district, which I think just goes to show that Democrats had a lot of work out, cut out for them. They had to do a lot of work to to come back in this district. So they're able to reasonably claim victory. On the other hand, with 11 Republicans in this race, uh, all vying to uh, to get a, a share of the vote spread, it was very difficult to deny uh, the Democrat, John Ossoff, an outright victory. You really needed uh, some sort of consolidation in voting uh, up at the top to deny him that 50 plus 1 percent. Yeah, and it's definitely, uh, I think the interesting story behind this is the fact that the president got very involved in the election in the last couple of days. You know, he tweeted out it. Um, he, he had a robocall. He had a robocall, which is also very weird. It's just very, it's very odd that a special election in Georgia is getting this much attention. You know, we've talked about that a lot. But the fact that the president of the United States felt that he needed to get involved um, is very fascinating for, uh, you know, the politics of the Republican Party. Uh, you know, he came out in congratulations of Karen Handel, who was uh, the Republican who's moving to the runoff. Um, and it's just, it's a fascinating look into Republican politics as well, because it's really interesting to see who's tying themselves uh, to President Trump and who's not. Um, and that's really what we're looking at. Uh, and let's just segue in, because we're going to have to talk to Michael at some point. I think we've done enough bantering. Yep. Uh, so Michael Steele, stop us, please. <laughs> Michael Steele, uh, just to give you a little bit of background on him, he's done a lot of work in journalism on Capitol Hill and campaigns. Right now he's currently with Hamilton Place Strategies, where he advises a range of clients on strategic communications and public policy. Most recently, he was a senior advisor for Governor Jeb Bush's presidential campaign. Uh, he was press secretary for Speaker of the House John Boehner. Uh, and had also gotten involved in the 2012 presidential campaign in which he served as past secretary for Paul Ryan. So the guy's been all over Republican politics. He truly knows uh, how do these movers and shakers interact and how they're able to be as effective as they are, which I think is very important in the legislative week that we have coming up, that we have people who are uh, competent, for lack of a better word, uh, enough to you know start making some deals and... and saving the government from a shutdown. You will find fewer people in Washington who know the House better than he does. You know, how it operates, you know, the big players in it. Um, he's been in there for so long that um, he's a really great voice to talk to about everything that's going on. Well, speaking of talking to him, uh, I hear him calling in. So here he is, <laughs> Michael Steele. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our next episode of Fly on the Wall. We have an awesome guest this week in Mr. Michael Steele. Uh, Michael, welcome. 
good to be with you. So I have to say, you know, Michael is one of uh, our favorite people in Washington, although we might not always see eye to eye on policy. Uh, He's one of the best people to really open up and talk candidly and, uh, you know, give you guys, uh, especially Democrats, a fair shot. So uh, we're very excited to dive into uh, what is a very topical conversation on uh, the state of Congress and specifically, you know, how communications uh, and legislative battles tie into, uh, you know, what we're seeing today. So, Christian, you want to lead us off with uh, your, our first questions? Yeah, Michael, I think we're I think we're all curious, basically, uh, considering what's going on in Congress right now. Uh, you you have a president who's um, you have a president who's asking a lot of the Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan. Um, and, uh, you know, we're seeing him, you know, set deadlines. We're seeing him want legislation done immediately. Um, so basically what we wanted to know from you, um, you know, through your experiences with Speaker Boehner, is this normal? Is this set of interplay between the president and the Speaker of the House uh, typical or is this different? Well, everything with President Trump is a little bit different, but the <laughs> expectation that the Speaker of the House is going to execute on uh, the President's agenda is absolutely normal. In fact, because of the protections for the minority built into the Senate, the dynamic in the past when uh, a certain particular par- a political party has held the White House, the House, and the Senate at the same time is generally that the House passes the most aggressive form of legislation that that it can on a party line vote and then that legislation is sort of watered down or moderated in the senate it goes back to jefferson's quote about the senate being the saucer that cools the the hot tea coming from the house Mm. it's what beats the dynamic we saw under president george w bush and speaker hastert it's the dynamic that we saw under president obama and speaker pelosi what's different now and this is kind of goes to the the heart of what both the speaker and the president are grappling with is that the speaker and the president's teams work together after the election uh, on a very aggressive and very complicated uh, and with the senate on a very aggressive and complicated set of um, policy priorities and the legislative tactics to execute them but almost all of those legislative tactics require passing things out of the House on a party line vote. And you've got this group of intransigent members in the House who just simply aren't willing to vote uh, for the policies developed by their leadership in the administration. Mm. There was a hope, this has been the dynamic for the past several years. There was a hope, I think, that given uh, President Trump's substantial support in the base of the Republican Party that these um, that these no votes, these naysayers, these intransigent uh, members would be willing to go along on executing strategies to accomplish goals, particularly when uh, the goals were things like repealing and replacing Obamacare, which they have championed and promised repeatedly. So far, we haven't found a way to do that. Right. So just to, to clarify a little bit and, and talk about your experiences specifically, how does this relationship between uh, President Trump, Speaker Ryan, and then, like you said, uh, the different caucuses within the Republican uh, House membership, how does that dynamic differ from what you experienced uh, in your time in Speaker Boehner's office with President Obama, obviously, uh, in the executive? Well, the, the dynamic with these... Uh kind of outlier members in the House Republican Conference is surprisingly seems very, very similar. And I think that's the frustrating thing. Right. Um, There's always been, I mean, as long as I've worked in or with the House of Representatives, which goes back to 
uh, about 15 years now, there's always been a um, kind of hardcore of anti-leadership uh, votes. Uh, these are the guys that, these are the members that voted against the Medicare prescription drug benefit and the No Child Left Behind legislation under President Bush. Mm. These are the same members that made it difficult to execute um, things like the, the uh, Plan B option and the fiscal cliff fight in 2013. I mean, it's just, they're, they're some of the same members who are instrumental in forcing the government shutdown in 2013 um, and almost having one in 2011. Uh, so it's, it's, very much the same dynamic between the leadership and this uh, sort of uh, obstinate rump of the House Republican conference that's existed for some time. I think the real surprise was that President Trump, with his appeal to many of these members, hasn't been able to change that. Uh, yeah, on that note, um, you talked a bit about, uh, you know, the failed uh, repeal and replace of Obamacare. Um, but there is talk now among uh, many conservatives uh, that there might be a new resurgence and a new bill to uh, repeal and replace Obamacare. Um, you know, based on what you know and based on how the House works, do you think that's feasible? Um, do we think we're going to see a new repeal and replace bill? Or um, are we seeing Obamacare sit in the law of the land for a while? Well, I think that it's, I'm not sure yet. Um, this is an important priority for virtually every member of the House Republican Conference, uh, no matter how they kind of line up on which portions of the law could be re, uh, replaced and, and stay in force and how exactly they should be executed. I don't think there's a Republican who's been elected in the past uh, six years who has not promised to repeal and replace Obamacare. Right. <laughs> so, Very true. Um, and we've had a number of votes to repeal and replace parts of it, defund parts of it, et cetera, um, some of which were actually signed into law by President Obama himself, um, kind of minor pieces of the law. But so the, you, what you're seeing right now is conversations between um, the more right-leaning no votes, uh, refer to themselves as the House Freedom Caucus, and at least one of the more moderate no votes, um, you know, that doesn't seem to precisely recommend, uh, excuse me, represent the moderate Tuesday group, but in that vein. Uh, so they're talking, trying to figure out whether there's policy provisions, whether there's language that can um, appeal, bring some of the more conservative votes back on board without losing some of the more moderate votes. Uh, you know, a lot of people compare wrangling votes in the House to keeping frogs in the wheelbarrow. And the, <laughs> um, so the trick is always if you, if you go hunting to bring one back into the wheelbarrow, two or three more will jump out while you're doing that. That makes sense. And, and something Christian alluded to uh, when he was you know, sort of framing this question originally is that President Trump has sort of put a lot on uh, Speaker Ryan's plate for uh, such a quick turnaround after the, the past two-week recess that we've seen. So I guess the question becomes, how realistic is it uh, to expect uh, either tax reform, uh, repeal and replace Obamacare, uh, and avoiding a government shutdown, um, at, at least solidifying, solidifying some sort of major legislative accomplishment for President Trump and his administration before that 100-day marker? Uh, how, how realistic is that to expect? Yeah, I mean, I think the I think tax reform is going to take longer. I know they're starting to say that the the president's uh, proposal may be may be rolled out as soon as next week. Um, mm -hmm. I'm a little skeptical of that. We'll see. The government funding bill should be relatively straightforward. 
Um, it's not a huge accomplishment, although there could be some policy provisions in there, like funding for the, the border wall that the President Trump promised. Um, that should be a more routine matter. I think the problem on the government funding bill over the past several years is you have this same group of intransigent members who, claiming to fight for conservative priorities, will vote no on almost any uh, spending bill. And what that does is it empowers uh, Nancy Pelosi and the House Democrats. You know, if Republicans can pass these bills on a party line vote, they have no need to negotiate with Washington Democrats. But if this rump group of Republicans refuses to vote yes, then that gives former Speaker Pelosi a seat at the table, and suddenly you're not in an exercise where you can add conservative policy victories to the funding bill. You're in a situation where you're going to have to make policy concessions to Democrats. So I'm curious on that note, uh, just because, you know, we talk about how now Democrats could be a player in some of the major legislation that gets passed. Let's say, you know, it's flip sides. Let's say you were a Democratic communications operative. How, how do you go about claiming success about, you know, pulling some of these concessions from Republicans? Because it seems like, you know, Democrats aren't going to get the most liberal bill that, you know, their base probably wants. No, They're no. just going to get something a little more moderate. Is, is there a way to frame that? looking at 2018 as a, as a big victory? Yeah, I mean, I think there is, I think the, the biggest, there is a definitely an opportunity for the Democrats. The biggest uh, worry, if I were them, is that they overreach, mm. particularly given how enraged their base is at President Trump and how um, significant or influential uh, the very, very uh, liberal socialist, et cetera, Uh, wing of the party has become. So I think the challenge for the Democratic leadership is going to be to come up with popular, reasonable-sounding concessions that advance progressive policy priorities without alienating uh, moderates or every single Republican. Because the the thing that that is going to challenge Democrats going into 2018 is balancing the need to keep their uh, they're very energized, very fired up, very pissed off base, uh, while also fielding candidates and offering policies that appeal to more middle of the road voters. You know, the path to a new Democratic majority does not lie in uh, Berkeley or Vermont. It, it mm-hmm. lies in winning, you know, Western North Carolina and Kentucky and Texas and suburban districts like Georgia Six and uh, and all across the country. Right. So on that note, I just have a quick follow up. Uh, so you're saying it's more beneficial for Democrats to play ball and take these moderate concessions rather than, you know, use a tactic that a lot of the base is calling for, which is just pure obstructionism and just stopping the Republicans from accomplishing anything and then claiming that as a victory. So you're saying it would make more sense for them trying to expand the base and expand the party to, to play along? I think so. I'm, I remember that when former Speaker Pelosi was the Democratic leader in the years between 2004 and 2006, as she began uh, seriously working towards winning the majority for Democrats in the 2006 elections, she had a posture of unrelenting opposition to any Republican effort, and she solidified her caucus in that position. I mean, if there were Democrats who, for example, had talked about uh, reforming and improving the Social Security system prior to 2004, between 2004 and 2006, 
they were nowhere to be found on that issue. They had been very clearly made a decision not to cooperate with Republicans at all. At the same time, I think that if, in this case, on a funding bill, for example, if Democrats make ridiculous um, or unpopular demands and we wind up in a, a government shutdown, they'll share some measure of that responsibility and some measure of the political fallout, whereas if they're able to keep their demands uh, popular and moderate, either they get policy wins or uh, it's Republicans who are seen as shutting down the government for unreasonable reasons. Uh, yeah, I actually wanted to talk to you a little bit about a government shutdown because it is looming. Uh, you know, two of the big things that could cause a shutdown uh, legislatively are um, you see uh, defunding Planned Parenthood and, you know, Trump's border wall are two things that could really get, um, you know, a lot of people on the left and the right uh, questioning um, any resolution. So, uh, but a lot of people don't really understand what a government shutdown is. Uh, I was wondering if, you know, using your experiences, you could kind of explain what a government shutdown is, um, you know, how bad is it? Um, and then, you know, politically for a Speaker of the House, can a government shutdown be a good thing politically or is it only ever a bad thing? It hasn't been a good thing yet. And so a government, government, the Congress is required under our Constitution to pass legislation to continue paying the debts of that the federal government has incurred. And there are a variety of mechanisms for doing that. The goal, the elusive dream is doing uh, the usual appropriations process in regular order, which means that every funding item is considered carefully, thoughtfully. We haven't done that really in the past 10 years or so in a proper fashion. Uh, we've had a series of ad hoc, uh, what are called continuing resolutions, which allows the government to continue paying its bills, continue spending money, but doesn't allow the real examination of what we're spending money on, what we ought to be spending more on, what we ought to be spending less on. It just kind of keeps kicking the can down the road. And once again, we've reached the end of the road. There's a can in need of kicking. And the question mm -hmm. is whether they're going to be able to do it. I think that's a, a great way of phrasing that. Uh, because, you know, it, it, at some level, it doesn't make sense just to keep... I mean, I understand the logic originally was to give President Trump, right, after the election, the opportunity to set the... Uh, to set sort of his priorities for spending in the, the fiscal year of 2017. Uh, but now it just seems like, yeah, it's it's April. We're, we're now, you know, planning a budget for the next few months. Uh, so it, it doesn't really seem like, it seems like now is the best time to strike a deal. W would you agree that now is the best time to sort of set something in stone? Yeah, no, I think that the part of the aggressive legislative strategy that, that we talked about earlier in this conversation was the idea that we were going to be much further down the further down the road in having repealed and replaced Obamacare, starting to work on tax reform uh, in a more uh, central way, and also executing on a budget and other spending bills. So I think there was an expectation by, that by this point we would be seriously debating a fiscal year 2018 mm -hmm. federal budget in Congress, and we're just not there yet. Uh, so what the, you know, the smart thing to do at this point is uh, continuing resolution, maintain current levels, uh, and try to get to the point where we can do a execute on a, uh, a smarter, more effective strategy looking at the FY18 budget. 
Um, you've talked a little bit about how, you know, we're really not where we thought we were going to be in Congress yet. Um, where does the responsibility fall on, um, you know, moving that legislation through? Is it solely on the speaker or does that responsibility also fall on the president? Well, I think bouncing off Christian's question, uh, we talk a lot about, you know, no one really knows what a government shutdown is. That, I think that's because the media finds the blame game, the sexier story. So that, that, that's why I'm so interested to hear, you know, is it the speaker's fault? Is it the party's fault? You know, who's, who's at blame here if it doesn't happen? If, if a shutdown happens, it will be ultimately the responsibility of that small group of House Republicans who are unwilling to vote for uh, the government's sp uh, spending bill that is offered by the leadership and the White House. And those, uh, those members are elected by their constituents. They are members of Congress. They are entitled to uh, vote their conscience and their and their opinion, but if they choose to vote no on the spending bill put forward by the White House and uh, the House leadership, they will be empowering Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats or shutting down the government. Right, and so I just want to push back, and just so um, you know, we're fully understanding, you'd think the blame would fall on that Freedom Caucus Tea Party-esque group rather than the Republican Party as a whole, or are you Correct. saying the Republican Party it could shift that Blatantly. So, so how exactly does it play out? Well, I mean, I think that the, the responsibility lies with that group of Republicans who won't vote for a Republican spending bill. Now, is the entire party going to get blamed? Absolutely. Is there any way to politically win a shutdown scenario when your party controls the White House, the House, and the Senate? <laughs> Probably not. Maybe, <laughs> but we have never seen it work in the past. Right. <laughs> so... Uh, so that's why I, I think that what, what we're what we're really looking at here, I don't think it's it's fair to blame either the speaker or the White House because the responsibility will lie with that group of twenty to thirty House Republicans who uh, put their own priorities above the good of the party and the country. So um, you've segued this nicely because a couple of weeks ago on this podcast, I went off on a rant, uh, <laughs> uh, to say the least, about. Um, the political uh, aspects of taking the speakership. Um, and I am of the personal opinion uh, that um, it is always an incredibly daunting decision to decide to run for Speaker of the House. I think you used some stronger language than that, Christian. <laughs> I did. Um, um, because I think it, in, in a lot of ways, is a really difficult decision to decide to become the leader of an institution with a single-digit approval rating, um, to be quite frank. And you've worked for multiple speakers um, you know, you've worked for Speaker Boehner and you've worked for Representative Ryan um, when he was, you know, the VP nominee. So you're kind of in the heads of uh, both of these gentlemen. Uh, can you talk to us uh, about, you know, what it's like to make that decision uh, to run to be Speaker of the House? And, you know, what goes into that? Yeah, so they, they actually, they had very different decision-making processes. Um, it's... Um, First of all, the, the, the House of Representatives, excuse me, Speaker of the House of Representatives is a unique office in our constitutional democracy in the sense that he is the only, he or she is the only person elected by the entire House of Representatives or the entire Senate. You know, the two leaders in the Senate by, you know, the Vice President is technically the President of the Senate, but the party leaders, Republican and Democratic, majority and minority, are elected only by their own party. 
the minority leader in the House, the Democratic leader at this point, is elected only by their own party. The House Speaker is the only office that has to get the majority, not of their own party, but of the all the voting members of the, of the House. So it's a really daunting task, and it <laughs> makes it very, very difficult, particularly when you've got a group of members who are willing to use the leverage of their of their own of their votes to try and extract concessions, etc. So Speaker Boehner was elected to majority leader uh, after Tom DeLay was indicted when we held the majority in the House in, in 2006. Lost the majority in 2006, about six months after he was elected, and Republicans chose to keep him as their leader in the minority. Uh, Speaker Hastert, former Speaker Hastert at that point, uh, retired. And Speaker Boehner spent, future Speaker Boehner spent uh, 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010, working to rebuild the trust of the American people in House Republicans and ultimately to win the majority in the House in the 2010 elections. So he didn't choose to run for Speaker so much as he led the effort to retake the House. In the case of Speaker Ryan, he never wanted to be Speaker. Um, he was very happy as the Chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. He probably could have been elected to the House leadership years before he was if he had any interest in it, uh, but he was he's a, a legislator, he's a policy person, and um, did never, never had any interest in that. But uh, when Speaker Boehner realized that um, he didn't have the support to keep the government funded and re remain Speaker, uh, and then Majority Leader McCarthy was unable to put together that majority of the whole House, not just the majority of Republicans, but the majority of the whole House to, to become the next Speaker. Paul Ryan re reluctantly accepted the fact that there was no one else in the House of Representatives who could command a majority of the whole House. I've always I've always had a theory, call me crazy, that uh, current Speaker Ryan, it, he sort of played it off as, you know, I guess if you guys ask me to do it, I'll do it. This has been like my House of Cards-esque inside the mind of, of Speaker Ryan. So you're telling me that he genuinely, genuinely got talked into it, sees it as his obligation. There's no, there's no uh, political gamesmanship there? No. <laughs> All right, though. That's amazing. He, he actually 100% did not want to do it, but was compelled when there was no alternative. So um, you have been the press secretary for uh, Speaker Boehner. Um, what is it like, um, considering the fact that, again, you know, Speaker Boehner is the speaker of an institution that, you know, is just unloved by the American people? Um, you know, what is it like to uh, be the press secretary and, you know, ask and answer questions, frankly, from the American people um, to uh, the Speaker of the House? It, it was a tremendous honor. Um, I think that any number of institutions, including the media, including, well, everything pretty much except uh, the military and small businesses has declined in the estimation of the American people over the past several years. There's an angrier mood, a more negative mood, which I think a lot of which traces back to longer term trends, but was thrown in particularly sharp relief by the, uh, the economic crisis in 2008 in the aftermath, um, but it remains a tremendous honor, and I think the best way to improve the American people's perception of the institution is to try and get things done on their behalf. Uh, Speaker uh, Boehner always used to say that the majority in the House of Representatives and everything that went with it wasn't 
a gift. It wasn't to, um, it wasn't the right of a party. It was a sacred trust given to a party by the American people to try and do great things on their behalf. Well, I think that's a pretty good mindset and, uh, you know, something that is, is much more inspirational as we uh, we try to navigate through some murky waters here in Washington nowadays. <laughs> Always like the optimistic message. Uh, so we want to shift gears a little bit and, uh, you know, really quickly talk about something that is going to be coming up this Saturday. And it's something that you're pretty familiar with. And that is the annual White House Correspondents Dinner. Uh, so we just sort of want to get your take as someone who is, uh, as in our private conversations, we've talked about how you've uh, been both a crasher of the White House Correspondents Dinner, uh, but also a legitimate attendee. Uh, so I, we just want to get a sense of, you know, what is this dinner normally like? You know, what does it mean for the city of Washington and for the institution of uh, you know, the free press itself? Well, it's been, it's gotten more and more to be uh, kind of a combination of the dinner itself, which is a, which is a lot of fun, which is a fascinating and important institution that does great work. Um, for, uh, both funding the White House Correspondents Association and also some scholarships they give to students uh, who are future journalists, aspiring future journalists. But it's also uh, grown into kind of a spectacle with a lot of Hollywood celebrities, a lot of associated parties and after parties and pre-parties and brunches. And it's a, it's a wonderful, exhausting uh, whirlwind of a weekend. I think it's going to be interesting to see um, What's different this year? I think that the, this is the first time in quite a while that the president is not attending the dinner. It's uh, the first time in quite a while, if ever, that uh, his staff has also chosen not to attend. And I think given the adversarial relationship between the current White House and the press, we're going to see more of a, a sober and serious uh, occasion. I think there's still going to be a place for uh, fun for people to get together and see old friends and make new ones and and all of that. But I think that'll also be a, a more serious event than it has been probably in recent years. Um, so we see a lot of uh, celebrities go to this event, um, and obviously they're there to, you know, get some level of attraction. But for a politician, uh, what does it mean to go to this event? You know, what are you looking to get out of it? Well, most politicians are going to uh, fly under the radar and not be mentioned in the remarks and do it to build relationships with uh, with reporters to, um, and frankly, just for fun to, to see celebrities and take pictures and, uh, and all of that. So it's, it's usually, uh, designed to be at least, uh, an event that brings people together in a relaxed and collegial setting where you can get to know people as human beings rather than as reporter and source or, or through a partisan lens. Yeah, and as you mentioned, you actually segued into this perfectly. So, you know, the president has chosen not to uh, attend for the first time in a while. Now, we know this isn't unprecedented or unprecedented. <laughs> I'll toss in that pun. Uh, <laughs> um, so it's not unprecedented, but uh, it certainly is unusual, especially after the attendances and uh, high-profile speeches of Barack Obama and uh, George W. Bush. Um, so Trump isn't going, his staff isn't going. What does that mean for, for the event? You said it's going to be a bit more sobering, uh, but does uh, yeah, this change? I think, it's going to be, I think it's going to wind up being a, uh, I think it will get back closer to its original mission of celebrating the First Amendment and the role and responsibility of journalists. And I think that seems to be the commitment that uh, the head of the Correspondents Association has made, and uh, I think we'll, we'll definitely see that in evidence. Is that going to change how the media covers the White House correspondents? Because before it's always been about you know who took shots at who. Yeah, if I you're think media, I how, think do you, will. how do you how do you how do you attack will. your uh, coverage of this? I think it'll be a lot more about 
celebrating the role of the press and, and the responsibilities and the challenges that uh, that reporters face in the Trump era, rather than kind of, you know, who said what about whom from the podium. Right. <laughs> so um, you've had a lot of history uh, at the Correspondents' Dinner. Do you want to talk to us about, you know, what the dinner's meant to you, you know, your experiences at them, and, you know, maybe throw in, uh, you know, your favorite Correspondents' Dinner moment or joke? Well, I, it's it's been a really fun association because the you know I started out as a kid who wasn't invited to the actual dinner itself, <laughs> but would you know rent a tuxedo and get invited to some of the pre parties or the after parties <laughs> and and sort of almost pretend I was going without actually without actually going to the room with the president, um, which was a terrific way to meet people. It was a terrific way to to see. You know, particularly in the early years, less celebrity celebrities and more Washington celebrities. You know, there's yeah, Justice yeah. Scalia or Senator what's You know, it's, it was it was really neat. And um, more recently, it's part of the great honor and responsibility of working for the Speaker's office was being invited to the event itself and uh, being part of one of the strange and complicated festivals of our democracy and <laughs> it's also you know a lot of fun to uh, to see the celebrities i got to i think my favorite actually celebrity sighting is uh um the guy who played bunk moreland on the wire I, it was one of the first <laughs> years i went like i actually went to the dinner and i was a huge wire fan and that was and he was could not have been i i hate bothering celebrities and he could not have been nicer or more thoughtful or more um generous with his time so that was a really nice moment that's awesome you know as a bunch of college kids that's something that we only dream of so we might have to uh to ask you offline about the tips for sneaking in (laughs) (laughs) that that sounds good guys maybe where to rent a good tuxedo in dc (laughs) good cheap tuxedo (laughs) um so uh we're going to transition into uh some closing questions uh, we have on uh, Fly on the Wall what we call a lightning round. Um, and uh, we're just going to ask you a couple really quick questions uh, and just, you know, right off the top of your head, first thoughts. Um, all right, so our first question for you is yes or no, will there be a government shutdown? Yes, eventually. Mm, interesting. That's looming. <laughs> <laughs> that's a little, that's a little uh, ominous. All right, uh, if you could have one job in D.C., what would that be? Head of the MPAA. Why is that? Because it's the coolest job in D.C. It's the Motion Picture Association. It's <laughs> movies. It's Hollywood. It's just it's a, an awful lot of fun. <laughs> uh, and then finally, uh, what is the best White House Correspondents Dinner Party you have to be at this year? I have to be at you. You can't the make coolest... me pick among. <laughs> the... You can't have me. Like, can't make me pick among friends. The they, coolest uh, one. A lot of. I'm looking forward to several really cool events that are organized by a lot of people that I have a lot of uh, a lot of affection and respect for. Sure. Um, and then uh, just a couple closing questions for you. Um, you know, uh, if you wanted to be the press secretary for the Speaker of the House, you know, how do you start at Georgetown? Uh, I would start by trying to get a uh, two things. I would get as much experience writing and dealing with the press, whether that's working for the Hoya or another publication on campus, as much experience doing that as possible. I would also look into an internship, ideally uh, either with a campaign or, or in office on Capitol Hill. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I'm, I'm sure there's uh, there's someone out here on campus that's going <laughs> to listen to that and, and take you up on it. So we really appreciate you, uh, you offering those words of wisdom. 
Thanks very much, guys. It was good to be with you today. Yeah, we appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Thanks so, much. so much. That Michael. was Michael Steele, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Fly on the Wall. Uh, if you liked what you heard, uh, subscribe to us. I feel like they liked what they heard if they're still here. That's fair. This is pretty late in the episode, but I, I feel like we have to do this. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Not only subscribe to us, give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Let's start moving up the charts. Let's start challenging some of those other hot political podcasts. Like oh, what? Like what? Like S-Town. What? Town. <laughs> like oh, S-Town. S-Town was so... It's not a political podcast, but it was so good. I'm going to like... They're, they're amazing. Everybody listen to it. It's awesome. We got to pitch our own pod here. So <laughs> at Fly on the Wall Pod, at Fly on the Wall Pod, at Fly on the Wall Pod, all over social media. Find us there. Tweet us, like us, favorite us, snap us, whatever millennials do these days. Don't, don't snap us. I'd be weird about I mean, snap us, but like... Quick shout out. Make sure you check out Fly on the World. Uh, everything that we've done in the past. Maybe if we're able to get something in the future. Uh, we'll be doing some cool stuff with international politics. So definitely keep an eye out for that. Yeah, definitely check it out. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Uh, you know, if you really like us, let us know. Uh, you know, hit us up on social media and tell us that you like us. Because so far, we just hear from our friends that, like, oh, this is cool. Like, I guess I like this or whatever. But, like, you know. We like love. We have appreciation. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Uh, definitely tune in next week. we got some really great episodes in the coming weeks coming up. Um, and you guys are really going to love it. So, guys, uh, we have made our official housing decision for 2017. We're going to not tell them what Oh, come on. <laughs> no, please don't. Why, are you, why do you want our guests to stop us? <laughs> Christian, not, Justin. Aaron does have a fan club on Instagram. Oh, actually. my God, no. <laughs> Aaron Bennett fan club. <laughs> I was going to say, you guys know better than anyone else that I don't have a lot of friends. So if anyone wants to Snapchat me or visit me in No, God, <laughs> edit that out. <laughs>